the early days of rituxan, avastin, herceptin, where you were so far ahead of everybody else are long gone. It's much more common now that you're launching with multiple inline competitors who are anywhere between six to 18 months on your heels. We no longer live in an environment in Europe particularly where you can ignore access anymore. It's no longer an excuse or an option because there's a heavy price tag and bill that is associated with doing that. It isn't about the quarterly numbers. It's about what we're doing every quarter to make sure that the long term is healthy. Welcome to this edition of the GS Associates European Podcast. I'm Jennifer Curtis. Imagine that you are the global marketing lead working on your new oncology brand strategy. You know that one in four product launches failed to achieve 50% of its estimated forecast. So how do you ensure that your strategy gives the brand its best possible chance of success? What does good strategy even look like? What are the milestones and core challenges to overcome? What choices are you going to make? Global brand strategy is about prioritization and choice. Failing to make either is the biggest challenge brand teams face. The competitive intensity of the market demands a different approach than a decade ago. To successfully launch a product, brand teams must be intentional about where to focus and how to prioritize resources in a coordinated and integrated way. In today's episode, we'll be exploring what makes a successful global brand strategy. To help us along the way, we'll be speaking to three VS Associates experts. Our first is Malik Kamen. My name is Malik Kamen, and I lead the ZS European Oncology Center of Excellence among other various service roles within the firm. So Malik, I know you wear a lot of different hats. What we really want to talk about today is strategy. What is it? What does good look like? Who's doing it well? What is global brand strategy? Great question. It's something that we see our clients struggling with quite a lot for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But let's just define it. What is strategy? Strategy, I think, is classically defined as a set of choices. There are trade-offs or prioritizations that one needs to make in order to be successful in any given market. Classically, you can think of strategy as making the where to play decision, and then the tactics classically are how to win. I found that a lot of our clients struggle with that language, however, because oftentimes you can cleverly rephrase pretty much anything into a how to win statement. And so the most effective thing we've found in our workshops is really emphasizing the idea that there's a choice to be made. And it should be a choice that two reasonable competitors could imagine taking either side of the debate of. And so often the the mnemonic that we'll use to help people decide whether or not they're really looking at a strategic choice is to ask them, as opposed to what? And if you can't answer the question as opposed to what, credibly, then it's probably not a strategy. You talked about some of the hallmarks of strategy is this choice element. What are some of the other elements, particularly thinking about the oncology space, that are hallmarks of a good strategy? So I think good strategy needs to include some element of the external. Oftentimes in our workshops, we have clients 
who are focused on removing internal roadblocks and internal obstacles. And those are often really important things to do, though they're not articulating where in the external landscape you intend to play. So in oncology in particular, we don't think holistically enough about the amount of time we have to develop an overall life cycle strategy for the molecule. And so we're not often thinking through the sequence of steps that we might need to take. A fantastic example of a company who did this really well was Celgene's Revlimid. So Revlimid was on the market in relapsed refractory patients for a very long time, but always with the explicit intention of going into first line. And they ran a series of really thoughtful trials to eventually position them as the dominant leader in front line. And so interestingly there, they didn't get niched. In fact, they were able to leverage their toehold to expand into a much broader set of patients. The days of companies being able to slip by without making any choices are long past. The early days of Rituxan, Avastin, Herceptin, where you were so far ahead of everybody else when you launched into a new disease area are long gone. It's much more common now that you're launching with multiple inline competitors who are anywhere between six to 18 months on your heels. So you've got a very short window of exclusivity, so to speak, before you're having to position yourselves amongst other players in the market. For me, that means we need to dust off our traditional marketing skills and start going back to basics to think about how do you actually differentiate in a market where your molecule attributes may not be the thing that differentiates you. So the questions become, where can you make strategic choices? There's a few dimensions that everybody should consider. Are there patient population choices? Are there meaningful patient population choices that I can make? I know I wanna get all of the patients in whatever setting I'm in, but can I think through a sequencing strategy about where I need to start, where my competitor is likely to start, which of those patient types we each have the best right to win, and which of the patient types we're probably going to compete the most heavily against. Thinking through that is really, really important. So we recognize that there's this need to think strategically about which patient or physician segment to target and when. But how does a pharmaceutical organization effectively do this? How do we ensure that the ideal strategy is carried out in practice? Our next expert, Kirsch Tesler, provides his perspective. Hi, everyone. My name's Kurt Kessler. I've been working in the pharma industry now for more than a quarter century, which sounds very frightening when I say it. And I'm really enjoying the work with uh, EU-based marketing teams over the past decade. It's great to have you here to give your perspective on global brand strategy. I know this is an area that you have a ton of experience in working across various therapeutic areas and clients of various sides. In your definition, what is a global brand strategy? A global strategy is all about the choices that you make. But a very common mistake is for brand teams to try to be 
a lot of things all at once as they launch um, because they're too afraid, for example, to become niche. But really, it's, it's the exact opposite. A genuine strategy is saying what you will do by also identifying what you will not do and then relentlessly pursuing it through execution. If I define myself as the best product, but for a very, very specific patient type, the fear is that I'll be making a mistake and I'll be niched into that patient type forever. And I just think that's a terrible mistake. So I see nothing wrong with starting with a very clear and specific patient usage occasion as the way to gain that uh, beachhead that you're going to want to expand beyond over time. What does good global strategy look like then? To make a small joke of it, I think that even for the global marketing lead, the job is 10% strategy and 90% execution. So while a good strategy is a very clear idea of who we are now, but who we more importantly are becoming as part of the long-term plan um, is great and it's absolutely necessary. But even if that isn't perfect, if I focus 90% of my energy on helping all of my major affiliates to execute as closely aligned to that strategy as possible, I can still achieve quite a bit. Andy Zoltners is a founder of our firm, and he was very fond of saying that he'd much rather have a B plan with A execution than an A plan with poor execution. What are some of the kind of practices of companies that do that well, this kind of longer term planning? versus companies that are more short-term oriented? The longer-term planning is a challenge for many companies because of the kind of financial pressure that so many of the pharma clients are under. But uh, those that do this well, it's the senior management that has the mentality that we're in it for the long run. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It isn't about the quarterly numbers. It's about what we're doing every quarter to make sure that the long term is healthy. If the senior management is confident in what they're doing, they can support brand teams to do the right things and invest in the data that's required to build a really strong, broadly used brand over time. What are some of the recommendations for what you think companies should be doing differently? I do think we've had a few points um, that don't need much repetition, right? Make the choices, get the insight, be able to consistently focus on execution. But there are a few things beyond that that I think are a good way of looking at this. And the place where I would begin is with genuinely deeply understanding the customer journey. So, you know, our patients flow through the healthcare system. There are many, many stakeholders in this very complex systems that we've devised for the delivery of healthcare services. And all of these different stakeholders out there are making decisions that are affecting the patient and affecting whether or not my brand is able to deliver value to that patient. And so the customer journey, very, very broadly defined to include all these different stakeholders, is immensely complex. And I think it's an opportunity for brands to continue to invest and reinvest in understanding that journey, understanding how it's changing and evolving in the light of competition, in the light of restructuring within the healthcare system, 
and continuing to evolve the value prop for the brand such that it really well aligns with the customer journey. You've kind of talked about, you know, what are the, the core things that you need to get right? You need to make the right choices. Um, you need to really focus on the linking of strategy to execution. And within all of this, it really needs to be firmly embedded within this deep understanding of the customer journey. Um, is there anything else that we need to kind of keep top of mind that you think about this? The global marketing leadership has to build an atmosphere of tremendous trust and teamwork. So if you think about how difficult the global marketing job is, I have to now, if I put myself in the shoes of that leader, I now have to work across all these different functional disciplines within my organization, everything from regulatory to market access to customer insight people. I have to relate to my senior management and convince them of the rightness of the strategic choices that I've made and how I'm going to support some of our major affiliates in executing against that. Um, I have to have relationships with some key suppliers of services because we can't internalize everything. And to do all that, to really lead, I need to create an atmosphere of tremendous trust and teamwork so that all these people from these very different disciplines and specialties and capabilities are able to work together in a world where there's a tremendous need for speed. Considering a diverse set of stakeholders in a product lifecycle is increasingly important, particularly when you think about the element of integration. But how do you do this? What are the components do we need to incorporate into strategy? Our next expert is Smitha Seeley, and she'll provide a market access lens to integrated brand strategy. So hi, I'm Smitha Seeley. I sit on the European Value and Access Leadership Team, and I've been in the market access and pricing space for about 12, 13 years now. So, Smita, one of the kind of areas that we really want to explore is the aspect of access and how that often doesn't get integrated as successfully or as fully as it should. What do you think typically drives this and, and how can organizations overcome it? That's a really good question. While access should be at the front and center of any innovation with pharmaceutical companies, you often find the access element comes in later because due to the challenges associated with pricing and level of access and therefore your ultimate commercial potential, a lot of companies don't want to forecast low to begin with due to the environment. So it comes in slightly later than it should. In reality, it should be the other way around. And access needs to be the first thing you think of to decide whether you disinvest in something rather than how to drive investment in something that you know is not going to drive you any value later on. I think one of the other reasons is uh, probably habit. Access has been becoming more and more important in the last 20, 30 years odd, but it's probably just a question of we've always done it this way. It seems like it would be obvious that you would want to be including the customer perspective in this instance in particular, the payer perspective, into how you go about generating the right evidence earlier on. What prevents this from happening? Part of it is how uh, companies are structured. 
Okay, that's number one. Typically, your commercial organization is the one responsible for your original forecast and initial planning. Market access teams do not have accountability or ownership for this, and sometimes even input. So it should seem obvious, but a commercial organization is not used to interacting with payers across the board. Therefore, in their mind, the true customer is the prescriber, not the payer. So smaller companies where their structures are a little bit more conjoined, where a lot of your commercial access people, your GMs are kind of tag teaming and doing different roles, they think about payers earlier on and often get it right. Whereas larger companies that are used to working with, uh, working in silos where commercial is separate, medical is separate, access is separate, you have a, an element of, again, always doing things the same way. They've never had to deal with payers. They've had to deal with HCPs. And therefore, it sort of gets left until later on. So I think market access teams and their voices aren't as loud or heard enough by senior C-suite members of big pharma companies. And the companies that understand this earlier on get it right. Thinking a little bit more about, you know, what good access strategy looks like. Um, what are the typical choices and trade-offs that need to be made in order to have a good integrated access strategy? I think it starts with R&D. I think R&D teams is where you need to start educating organizations about the importance of access. We no longer live in an environment in Europe particularly where you can ignore access anymore. It's no longer an excuse or an option because there's a heavy price tag and bill that is associated with doing that. So I think it starts with R&D. R&D organizations need to have a better appreciation of who their customers are. And those customers are not just patients and clinicians. It starts there. And R&D and access and medical need to be working very closely together in the first instance. And then commercial R&D, medical and access need to be working together much closer. The other sort of organization or team that people often forget is government affairs. So government affairs and access need to be a lot more joined up as well. Because essentially how I see it is your government affairs organization is responsible for educating the wider organization on how government policy is changing, how that impacts use of their medicines, how that impacts their company. A big part of government policy in Europe is payers. So in some companies, you often find government affairs and market access also don't even talk to each other, let alone commercial market access, medical and R&D. So... I'd say a good integrated access strategy is incorporating access and R&D right from the beginning. So when you're designing a trial, you're designing it for all customers, not just clinicians. Today we heard from three different CS Associates experts on how global brand strategy drives success and the components of it. While we often use the word strategy, it's is often misunderstood and confused with a vision. Strategy is about making a choice, a trade-off, about what you will and will not do. It is the foundation to drive decision-making by providing a focus on the key brand objectives 
and the course of action to achieve them. So what are the takeaways for oncology companies? Well, to develop a strong and successful global oncology strategies, you should really be looking to do three things well. First is focus on the long term. Look at brand strategy as a life cycle strategy, sequencing where to play with the long-term perspective at the start in order to generate the right evidence to pursue those opportunities for those diverse stakeholders. Second is really basing all of this, all of the strategic decision-making on deep understanding of the customer journey. And it's not just a patient journey or a physician journey, it's a holistic customer journey that includes both those perspectives and the payer lens. And third, develop these strategies in collaboration across medical access and marketing from the start. This is different from what typically happens, which is very siloed by functional area. By taking this integrated lens from the beginning, it ensures more consistency and collaboration to create and deliver products that meet diverse customer needs that are rooted in the reality of the marketplace. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. Thank you for joining.